Hey everyone, Hoppo here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get into the studio because of the COVID outbreak, so the quality of these episodes may not be as good as usual. But stay safe, and uh, we'll get through all this together. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, you'll probably know this lovable guy. He's from the TV show, The Living Room. Barry Dubois was born in the western suburbs of Sydney in Liverpool. He was a carpenter, went to a builder, then a property development business. He made the move to Bondi, where he met his wife, Leonie. Life turned upside down when he was diagnosed with cancer in 2010. And just after that, he had the birth of his twins. Baz the ambassador for Are You OK and Cancer Council Australia, and he recently announced he was running for the Australian Senate for an independent candidate. Then we have the rest of our show as usual, so now let's have a listen to my chat with Baz. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's uh, a good welcome to Barry Dubois. Baz, how are you, mate? Hoppo, it's a bit chilly out there, so I'm glad I'm not on the beach, really. <laughs> yeah, mate, it's my day off as well, so it's yeah, good I'm not out there. It's uh, quite cool this morning. But, uh, mate, we'll, we'll start off. You were born in the western suburbs of Sydney, uh, yep. the suburb of Liverpool. Tell us a bit, what was that like growing up? Was that back in the, uh, what, early... Early, <laughs> early days. <laughs> Back in the early centuries, I is, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, I was born in 1960, so uh, that's a hell of a long time ago. And, you know, back then... Uh, places like Paddington and the inner city, they were the slums of, of, of the city, uh, the rocks, those places. And, and the frontier men and women, if you will, they went out to the suburbs, this, this great new land that sort of was created in the 50s. We started to subdivide and modulise homes and head on out. And, um, you know, there was big open spaces um, and we we had a very incredibly modest little house, a fibro house. Um, we were surrounded by paddocks, though. So as little kids, uh, there was plenty of adventure, and uh, we weren't swimming in the beach as much as I would have liked to. We did that at Christmas time when we went down the south coast. But yeah, we, we made the best of it. And back in those days, different to to a lot of kids these days, you learnt to make the most of what you had, and we thought we had it all. So well, I was pretty happy, mate. Yeah, mate. Uh is that a reason why you, you got into uh, carpentry uh, out there with all the, you know, as you said, the houses were, 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 yeah. were being built out there? Is that something that attracted you? Yeah, well, I did. I, we didn't have any money, that's for sure. And a trade for um, a, a kid like me uh, who didn't, I, I wasn't overly well educated. I, I was dyslexic. We didn't know that until much later in life. These days, these sorts of things are... Uh, Analyzed, you know, when the kid's three years old, but I didn't really wake up to that until I was about 30, quite frankly. 
And uh, so I didn't, I couldn't read and write going right through school. I never learned to read and write properly. Um, and the thing, what happened in the suburbs, so when I was leaving school, let's say that's 15 years later, it had developed into a very uh, flat line economy. It was the lower middle class lived in the suburbs. And, uh, and uh, that meant a really good job was a builder and a really average job was a, was, um, a, a manual labour job. Uh, we didn't live beside accountants and doctors. Uh, the only doctor we knew was the one we went to. So I didn't really aspire to be a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor. But because I had the, the open spaces and, and, and the garage, I'd used my hands since I was a little kid making billy carts and slides and tree houses and stuff like that. So I enjoyed creation. And I always say this, I had one uncle that was a mechanic and one uncle that was a uh, carpenter and I wanted to work outdoors. So I went with the carpenter. And that was my opportunity in life. Right. Then you went to a building and then a, a property development business. Sure. Tell us a bit about that, how that all came about. Well, I, I was very lucky. Uh, I love design and I was mentored early by an architect. Uh, he saw something in me I don't know what but he saw something in me and and I really got a, a great understanding of the uh, the philosophy of design and uh, an understanding of brief which was a great learning curve for an uneducated person who liked using his hands so what happened was I was a much sought after builder by the developing companies and and building companies quite frankly and I I was being paid good money to build what I thought were average places. And I just sort of said one day, you know what? I'm doing all the work here and I'm taking on their designs and their opinion on what is, a, what is good for the market. And I personally had a very different opinion. So I said, I'm just going to attempt to build a couple of places that I think I would like and see how that reacts with the market. And as it happened, the market loved them. And, uh, and quality, well-designed properties that I was building were much sought after. And that turned into a developing company. It, it started off as a spec builder, but then I ended up building $10 million waterfronts on the harbour. Geez, that must have been exciting. It was. Uh, it's, it's how I came to Bondi, to tell you the truth. Uh, nice segue, Hopper. Uh, <laughs> I was contracted by a, um, a really big builder here in the eastern suburbs. Uh, it was one of the booms, uh, probably the 80s sometime, and uh, late 80s it was. And um, I got asked to price a beautiful home in Vaucluse. And uh, in hindsight, the price I gave was about 30% cheaper than he, he had quoted because he was an eastern suburbs builder. He was ripping everyone off and I was still making a stack of money. Uh, I'd never been to Vaucluse. I'd never seen Bondi Beach. And I arrived uh, with my plans and my tools and uh, I saw this beautiful place here. And I went to Vaucluse and if you're from the western suburbs surrounded by Fibro and you go up to Village High Road in Vaucluse, you think you've landed on another planet. And, and I said to myself right there and then, I've got to be here. I thought the richest man in Australia was the guy who owned a big brick house at Moorbank. Right. Okay. But I realised that this is where architects and builders and uh, doctors and politicians and a huge and garbos all lived in a giant community that had so much to... Uh, 
diversion. Uh, what's the word? You know, everybody was here. Yeah. The harbour was here. Bondi Beach, for God's sake, was here. This was paradise. And and uh, I quoted that job. I made a lot of money. Funny story. The lady who I was building the house for was br- bl- throwing out a brand new washing machine because they were getting a new washing machine for the job. And I, I just couldn't believe that that sort of waste could happen. Yeah. And I asked her, could I buy it off her? And she said, no, you can just have it. I said, my mum's had the same washing machine for 25 years. <laughs> and she said, yeah, but the knob on this one's a bit worn down and you can't see where the wash cycle is. And I said, wow, I'll, I'll write that on again, you know. And, <laughs> and at the time, it was probably a $1,000 washing machine. She was throwing it out because it, you couldn't read the, the what was on the knob, how to turn to wash. So I was just taken by the place and fell in love with it and wanted to be a part of it. And so then um, you, you moved to Bondi not long after that? Uh, no, I know. Because of the journey to and fro to the western suburbs was a bit arduous, so I ended up renting a place in, uh, in Potts Point, uh, it was a, it was a, and and a couple of our crew, because all our crew came from out the western suburbs, and uh, you know we we dis- we discovered the Cock and Bull Hotel and, uh, <laughs> and, and and the Oaks Hotel, and uh, we mixed it with some of the best drinkers in the area, <laughs> and and fell in love with it, and 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 met some amazing people early, uh, mm-hmm. as you know, I was blessed to meet Pete Cahoon very early, yep. also blessed to meet my wife Leone very early in the day, and uh, I loved the scene. Well, mate, also, during that time, it had come after, I think I was reading about, you're an expert building witness in the New South Wales courts. Sure, now, sure. tell us about that. I was quite interested to hear that um, and why you would go into something like that. It was interesting. Um, I had a lawyer. I, I was buying and selling property, and um, and with that, you create a relationship with a, a solicitor. And, uh, and that person now is still one of my good friends now. He's a young guy, and I really liked his energy. From the eastern suburbs of Sydney, of course, and um, and he would uh, be very interested in my passion for quality building, and uh, and he often would say to me, "Hey, what do you think of this? I'm representing this guy, and the builder's done this and done that and done the other." And I said, yeah, what he's done is taken a shortcut here because he thought he could save money doing it this way and he thought the owner wouldn't notice, but it always comes comes back to you because you're going to get lateral damp. And he goes, wow, you haven't even looked at a plan. I said, well, I don't have to. Uh, I, I know what's happened there. I, I, I've seen, I've fixed these mistakes many times. So he, we, I did a course and uh, and I became an expert witness. Uh, I was all, at the time, I was my business, you've known me for a long time, Hopper. Yeah, yeah. As a businessman, I was pretty successful. Uh, whilst I might not have been able to spell one million when I wrote the first million dollar check, I've written plenty. And that's because I had a, 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 a good building business, a good uh, design business, a good development business. And I saw yet another uh, uh, sort of um, arrow in the quiver as consultancy, just lending my skill and my knowledge of building to those that didn't quite understand it. And let me say, the Home Building Act of Australia is one of the hardest things to determine you could ever look at. It's uh, so much of it comes down to an opinion. And unfortunately, and I'll say this out loud, unfortunately, whoever can pay the highest for the opinion wins the case. Mm. (laughs) In every case, as I, I I was gonna change what I said then, but in actual fact, I, my team, myself, my lawyer, and our barrister—we were, we were in the end one of the most expensive teams, but we won everything, and it was quite interesting, damning, um, sad. That the act itself is so 
hubbly-jubbly, that I could win cases even if we were in the wrong. Uh, Even if our client was in the wrong, I could argue any point and make, and and I, I couldn't, I couldn't, stomach that I, I I'm one particular it was I, I only really recognized it once and I said to the team guys the guy we're representing here has done the wrong thing and uh and I wasn't I wasn't keen to be a part of that anymore well mate that's fair enough and I know how uh how loyal and and a great bloke you are and it would be hard to uh yeah to do that you know yeah yeah as it ends that that case not only uh uh, ended uh, that career, uh, it cost me a fortune because I ended up going to the owner's place and, and having my team fix his house up. Right. I felt I felt terrible that we we beat him and I couldn't see that another man would be um, uh, and his family would lose money over my, over my expert argument. But that wasn't my fault, wasn't the lawyer's fault. It's the system's fault yep. because mm. it allows an interpretation. It doesn't make a ruling. Mm. Well, mate, going back to Bondi, I grew up around there, went to school at Dover Heights where you were saying it's near Vaucluse where you mm. where you first turned up. Great area. Tell us, you did meet your wife, Leone. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. And then also you developed a house out on North Bondi Point there at Ben yeah. Buckler. Yeah. If I look at it, I'll develop it. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love curiosity. Uh, I love uh, making something that is into something better. Possibly. But, uh, yeah, we were working in Vaucluse and uh, the plumber, uh, my plumber, uh, Scotty Wilkie, you may remember him as good, uh, and, and George Wilkie. You know yeah, George. I, I yeah, remember yeah, the yeah, name, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both lifeguards, uh, good ski paddlers. They were working for me. They were coming from the Central Coast and they said, let's go down and have a bit of a train at North Bondi. I said, I've never been in a North Bondi circle. And they said, well... We're members, we can take a guest in and you're allowed to do that. It's one of the beautiful things about surf lifesaving. It's a beautiful community. But we did, a, we had a bit of a, uh, they took me out on the boards. We had a bit of a paddle and uh, we walked across the road and we walked into Dooley's Cafe, yeah. and uh, which was one of the only cafes around at the time. And my now wife was behind the counter uh, and there was all pictures on the wall. I'm not sure if you were on the wall, Hopper. Were you on the wall there? <laughs> Don't know. Uh, I might have been. The Dooley's Cafe. I think I got to start some stuff. You got to start there, I think. And uh, and I just uh, looked at all these beautiful, healthy people. Uh, a lot of lifesavers, a lot of rugby players, a, a real diverse community. And I just loved that little cafe. I loved that that North Bondi area. I loved everything about it. That's how I met Leone, uh, obviously. But. Interesting. Uh, I was chatting to her and questioning her on it, and uh, and and you probably know this story. But on the wall was the one Peter Cahoon, who was acting as a lifeguard at that point, uh, and had been in the Iron Man series. And uh, and uh, Leone said to me, "Oh, well, that guy there who's just walked in is that guy there on the wall." And I said, "Oh, have a go at you, you know." And <laughs> Pete, Pete's an architect for the for the listeners, an amazing. Um, I'd say a bohemian sort of uh, artisan. He's an incredible yeah. man, and uh, and uh, and he introduced himself, always up for a chat. And I said, "So this is you, eh?" And I said, "You're in the Iron Man series, the best of the best." And he said, "Yeah." I said, and I said to him, "You know, if I had grown up in this area, I would have been an Iron Man, and I probably <laughs> would have beat you." <laughs> and and we we struck up a friendship, and uh, and I started a love. Uh, a, a romance, I guess, yeah. uh, from there and 10 years later or something, uh, I married Leone. Well, mate, P- Pete Cahoon, I... And, um, and, Pete, and Pete Cahoon was the MC at the wedding. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pete was my first day as a professional lifeguard was uh, with Pete Cahoon. He was uh, showing me the ropes on my very first day. So yeah, yeah, great, great guy. He's done a lot of things in his in his life as well. Yeah, everyday man. <laughs> Mate, uh, the other thing too is you were telling me um, yeah years ago we used to take off from Australia uh, with the only and, and sail and through Europe and sure. so tell us that story because it's, it's quite interesting how you spent time there then you came back and spent time back in yeah. Australia yeah, yeah uh, my life's had some hurdles in it as much as in the uh, early 2000s I was making a lot of money uh, I was developing some beautiful properties one of which I lived out on the on the Wondai Point I built a I bought a little apartment in there and then um acquired a few other apartments and then put a penthouse on the roof and that was a very successful development financially i was doing really really well but i'd lost my mum uh to cancer sorry hopper and then leone got cancer as well and we lost she uh she she got cervical cancer and we sort of what happened to me as a as a 40 something year old alpha male who sort of could take on anyone and have a go at anything I sort of just got a little bit beaten up inside. Uh, my mental health wavered. Uh, I found myself in a pretty dark spot. <clears throat> and my only uh, salvation was my business, was work. And I, did, I, I all of a sudden wasn't doing it for the love of it. I was doing it fanatically. And I was making an incredible amount of money, but I was, in, I was disturbingly dark and upset. And, and couldn't protect the two women that I loved. Mm. And then uh, dreams of children and stuff like that were, was, was sort of gone for me and children was always going to be a, a huge part of my life. And so there was two Bazes at that point. There was this really dark and, and disturbed Baz who just wanted to go up to the gap, quite frankly, and jump off. Uh, and there was the other one who, from everybody else's point of view, probably yours at the time as well, Hoppo, yeah. I was this successful guy that was just killing it. Uh, and I I sort of had this opinion that the, the world economy had to break. I was pretty convinced of that. And I was pretty keen to get out of whatever I was doing. So I, I determined to sell everything I owned, which I did. And literally a week after that, the market crashed. I brought, uh, I had commissioned my beautiful yacht, Bella Sonny, in uh, the south of France. And uh, I, I went over there. I took my dad. Leonie wasn't keen on the boat, but she just wanted me to be happy. And um, I took my dad and we, we were going to sail around the world on Bella. Uh, but the, the Mediterranean is like, is like the eastern suburbs on steroids, <laughs> but with good pasta. And, uh, and uh, I, I had intended to do the arc around the world rally. Uh, but I just fell in love with the fact that I could be in the south of France one day and Africa three days later. So uh, we just, um, Leonie and I would spend six months of the year on the yacht in the Mediterranean and then six months of the year in our beautiful Bondi Beach. And I did that for about seven years, living the dream, so to speak. Uh, I, financially, I was secure. I, uh, I was getting healthy. My depression was wavering. And Leonie and I had found a journey through surrogacy, which was heading in the right direction. Um, so uh, it, it was a pretty good time. And, um, and I still have the yacht. Uh, obviously, with COVID, we can't get to it at the moment, but my children have been on the yacht three times and it's just a gift and, and we love everything about it. And um, 
Yeah, it will always be a part of my life. And do you think when you said you're in that dark period, mm. that was what you went and did then has really helped and brought you out of it? Uh, the reason you get into a dark, or the reason I got into a dark spot, and this is the case for a lot of people, is is a lack of balance. Mm. Everyone goes through it. Uh, you've been through it, Hobbo. We've yep. all been through it. We, we, I always say you can only spin one plate. That's the plate of life. If you're trying to spin a career plate and a relationship plate and a a, a friends plate and and a, and something else plate, none of those plates get your best attention. And they all eventually get wobbly. And when they're wobbly, it's depression. When they crash on the ground, it's suicide for some people. Or worse, ill health and cancer and things like that. So I learned how to balance my whole life on one plate. Uh, It means you can only attribute a certain amount of time to certain things. But if you've got balance, you'll find the light. And, And I was, because of... I was putting so much attention on the plate of trying to save people from cancer and I was putting so much attention on just fanatically making money to throw at those diseases. They're the only two things that mattered. I wasn't healthy. Uh, You're only a kid, but I got up to 118 kilos. Uh, You know, I wasn't healthy. I wasn't surfing every day on my favourite North Bondi break, annoying you blokes in between the flags. (laughs) I wasn't doing anything that was good for me. I was sort of punishing myself through too much work, too much. um, I drank a little bit. Not that that was ever an issue, but I I didn't balance it out with good food, love, emotion. And and that took me to the dark spot. The yacht saved me and and got me through and rebalanced me. Mate, but in 2010, you were diagnosed with cancer. So what – Yeah, it obviously flipped your life upside down. Yeah, it was interesting, uh, but, but it does. It flips your life. Uh, I was, I'd been six or seven seasons on the yacht, and um, because I'd sold all that property, everybody talks about how they knew the financial crash was coming, but very few people in the world actually acted on it. I was one of, I believe, about a 1,000 people that – acted on it before it happened, not after. Uh, and uh, there was a big article on me in the Financial Review about that. And um, and as you can imagine, if you if you sell out of the market at 6,000 points and you buy back it in 3,000 points, you, you're doing all right in the world. So, And there was a show on, on the TV called The Renovators coming on. It was, it was going to be coming on. And one of the executive producers of that show saw the article and, and said uh, that they wanted me to... Um, uh, be the mentor on the renovators show and uh, I said no three or four times and then that Christmas I was down the south coast uh, at, at my mum and dad's old place and I, I was surfing and I went under a wave and the wave hit me on the head and and I heard a fearsome crack and that crack was actually my C1 vertebrae caving in uh, and then three months later, not until um, till March, I went to went along to the doctors, and 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 um, what had happened was three things had happened at once. The the TV producers kept ringing me. I was in India uh, working on a surrogacy uh, uh, situation, uh, and I had this really aching neck. And I said to Leone, when I come back from uh, when I come back from India, I've got to find out what's going on with my neck because I was really, really struggling. It was really hurting. 
And um, so there it was. I, uh, I, I get the x-rays and uh, I went over to India. I came back from India. The, I kept getting this phone call from the producer who I just kept ignoring it because I was just annoyed with the headache. And it was like a perfect storm all arrived at once. I went into the doctor's. I found out that I had a giant uh, uh, plasma cytoma myeloma in my neck, uh, which had eaten away my vertebrae. The doctor, Tim Steele from St. Vincent's and, and a couple of others sat me down and said, Baz, it looks like you only have three months to live. And I said, well, I'm not really interested in that. <laughs> and, uh, and I, But I was a little scared and I, t- I pulled the... I, open my phone to ring up my brother and say, you know, come down here, I've got to sort some shit out. And the, um, the casting agent rang me up for the seventh time and said, <laughs> hey, Barry, it's Kirsty De Levance, cast the thousands. Barry, we've been told to say that we'll do anything you want to get you on this show. And I said, oh, well, because I nearly threw the phone out the window, but I thought, well, I'll tell you what, you call me back in three months and if I answer the phone, I'm going to do it. And uh, <laughs> there it was. It was sort of the perfect storm. And th- six months later, I was on the renovators. Unbelievable. Hmm. And, and as we now move into that, that TV world, you, you took on that role, but then that was short-lived and then you went to another role in the living room? The biggest thing on TV at that time was Bondi Rescue, so nothing <laughs> could compete with that sort of, uh, that sort of talent base there and, uh, you know. So you thought you'd come up with your own show, The Living Room to Outdo Us? <laughs> well, I said to Amanda Keller, we've got to do something to beat these surfies. And, uh, and no, no, that, yeah, The Renovators, I thought it was a great show, but uh, and in hindsight it rated really well as well, but um, that was the, the ups and downs of TV. But uh, I was blessed to meet Amanda Keller and they were working on a show with her called The Living Room, which was going to be like a Friday night sort of a show. More uh, um, a Graham Norton sort of a show than anything, and um, but as is the case, lifestyle brings the uh, brings the money, so to speak, because you've got the big sponsors with that. And Amanda liked me, I liked her, and uh, they had Chris in mind for something. They weren't sure what, and then Miguel fell into the into the pot, and it became the perfect mix. Yeah. And um, the living room was born, and it's been beautiful ever since. And what that's been going was about 10 years now. It's a decade, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what I find, though, is, you know, watching the show, but also I know all of you outside of, mm. of the show, and you just feel like such a close family, close-knit. And is that um, something that you believe has, has grown? Oh, definitely. I mean, no, not grown. Yeah, grown, but we fell in love, the four of us. Uh, it's an interesting story. There's a block of units up behind the icebergs, that one of the production companies have a, a share in. And we had a casting meeting in there, the four of us. And I, I'm not sure if you've done a casting meeting, Hoppo, but they put you in a room to see if you gel with each other, you know. And uh, I'd never seen Miguel before. I'd seen uh, Chris, but didn't really know who he was. And, and I thought Amanda was just great. And they couldn't have had a clue who I was. And and, and Miguel was Miguel and never changed. But the four of us sat down there. And, and what happens in a casting sort of thing, the, the producers will throw a few questions out and just video each other and see how we respond to it. But we literally did not stop talking for three hours. I mean, the three of us, or the four of us, just 
it seemed like we were a pod of dolphins came together and that was our pod and and the producer sort of said at the end of about three hours of having a few beers and some cheese and just chatting and chatting and crying and laughing and it was just a beautiful couple of hours and they said well it seems like you guys get on we're happy if you're happy and we all said oh oh you're still here hey let's go down the icebergs and call up our partners and 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 we've been best friends all of us ever since i mean just it's just been magical and mate, also the the logies. I mean, yeah. we've done a few logies. Bondi Rescue, we're lucky we've we've won um, uh, six logies. But yeah. then you guys have won a lot of logies as well. And w- what was that first one like when you first won? Well, it's it's amazing. I mean, I uh, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it's hard to explain to people. You watch these things on TV and you think we're all wankers on there, but we're just average <laughs> people at one of the best parties you can go to. Uh, there's definitely no expense spared. And then you're in a room, for me, I don't know about you, Hoppo, but I'm in a room from all these people who are famous. I don't really know what I'm doing there. And then next minute, all the cameras are on your table and they say the living room or Bondi Rescue. And you just can't, you know, you can't believe your ears. And uh, any responses you've seen of me and Miguel and Chris and Amanda, it's just incredible excitement, overwhelming. And like Bondi Rescue, most of the people in the room love our show. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, the, one of the first people to congratulate us every time is is Joe Griggs, uh, you know, the host of so-called opposition. But yeah. we all get on so well, and and lifestyle and and what you do, it, it's a, it's a good place to be. Well, I remember the first time that we won the Luggies, and I was down there, and Bert Newton was giving us the award, and I remember going up, shaking his hand, he's congratulating me, and I'm thinking. This is so surreal. Like you were saying yeah. before, mate, I've watched this guy on TV my whole life, and oh, now he's man. presenting an award to me at the Logies. It, it's, it was just totally bizarre. Yeah, yeah. and uh, No, it is bizarre. Uh, it's bizarre, but the best things in life are a bit bizarre. Yeah, I know. That's right. Mate, um, also, you're talking about uh, your kids. You had the birth of your twins, how did that feel? That moment must have been on the best you've ever had. Incredible, yeah. We a uh, couple of things happened. The um, what happened when uh, I got plasma cytoma myeloma? Obviously, I got cancer the second time just more recently. But we always were working on a way to have children, and uh, the doctor suggested that I get my sperm checked, uh, and if it's good, I can freeze it because after the chemo that would probably I'd probably be sterile and um, so what happened was we went off to I went off to a place and and had my sperm checked and the motility and the numbers were all good but but zero right in we discovered that there was some defragmentation in in the head of the the sperm Uh, and what that meant was my wife and I had had 13 miscarriages in the past and we were always looking to see what could be wrong with her plumbing, so to speak. And then when she got cancer, the, uh, the cervical cancer, we sort of put it down to that. But in actual fact, or, or there's a good probability that it was my sperm that wasn't right. And, and that's why those pregnancies didn't hold on. Now, this might seem bizarre to be talking about, but it's a world of knowledge that you don't know unless you hear it. And uh, that's why I always say to young couples, um, we always think birth is all about the women, 
And, and like I said, we discovered that 99% of the sperm I had wasn't fit for, for um, fertilizing an egg. But there was 1% in there that were perfect. So we were able then to, to, to get those ones. And, and, and we'd already had one or two attempts at IVF, uh, not just IVF, but uh, surrogacy. And those had failed as well. But then when we discovered that this, this new magnetization, for a better word, of the sperm, we, I translated that to the doctors. And, and, and so what we did was I, I created the sperm and then we were able to look at that at 800 times higher than you would normally look at it. And therefore, I've not only had these amazing uh, gifts of science, but I've actually, I actually selected the sperm and watched it enter the egg and then watched it divide into two. Wow, you know, think amazing. about that. There's 64 billion cells in your body and in my beautiful twins. And I watched the, the second the first life happened when it split into two. Um, and yeah, so after seven attempts of um, surrogacy in India, uh, and at 50 years old for me, um, hang on, 50, no, 52 I was. Yeah, uh, nine months later, my beautiful twins were born and uh, it's, it's just another another stage of an amazing life. Mate, it's a, that's an amazing story. Um, I didn't even know that, that you could watch it actually happening. It's you, you can't yeah. normally, but when you've paid for it eight times, seven times, <laughs> and, and you're so engaged and everybody's rooting for you, we, 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 and I had nothing else to do. Not many yeah. guys are 52 having their first children. Yeah. Uh, they're probably waiting at home having a cigar. Well, I wanted to, uh, being a control freak I am, I wanted to see every millimetre of the process. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was a gift. Well, Baz, you're an um, ambassador for Are You OK and also Cancer Council Australia. What, yep. you know, what do you do for those organisations? Oh, we, obviously, I've shared with you my story of, uh, of depression uh, and that story heard by someone might help them get through what they're going through. And um, so I like to share. I'm, I was I'm very engaged with the Are You OK Day. Um, I think what Gavin Larkin did when he lost his dad to suicide, Barry Larkin, over a decade ago now is was a, an incredibly um, it's an incredible solution to a problem not a solution but a step forward for a solution and, and awareness around just chatting just the the chat that you and I have had today 20 years ago couldn't have been had no, there's no way right. I can talk about sperm and depression no. and, and and cancer in the same yeah. sentence yeah. It, it just wouldn't be manly Mm. Uh, and, you know, n- n- no disrespect uh, to anybody, but I'm as manly as any man and I'll talk about anything. And, and life has taught me how important that is. Cancer Council as well. I, 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 I work with the Cancer Council just trying to show people that you can be sick and come back and be strong. I mean, you've seen me at my best and my mm. worst, Hoppo. Yep. It, it wasn't a pretty picture at one stage. And for the average person that, that might feel that they might want to give up, um, but... I'm here now, I'm talking to you, and, and I know particularly through, I'm, I'm very much involved with a, with a charity called the Snowdome Foundation now, and, and they are more specifically focused on blood cancers and, and the future treatments, the CAR-T therapy, and the, and the trials uh, that can be made available so we can understand that. And I cherish every day, you know that better than most, so I want to do whatever it takes to be here for as many as I can be. 
And, mate, that's what this podcast's about. You know, life's a beach. It's also life's a bitch. It's, uh, you know, everyone has their ups and downs. Everyone yep. has their dark times. And like you said, we need to speak about all these uh, topics to because there's so many people out there struggling and don't know who to talk to or not confident enough to bring it up. And I think yes. it's, it's fantastic on, on what you're doing with this. Yeah, it, it's important for people that are struggling to know that we're not up every day. There are, there are struggles, and, and quite frankly, those struggles make us appreciate the, the good days more, uh, and you don't want to sort of go down that tunnel too far. It's just a bad day sometimes, and tomorrow, if you're still having a bad day, let someone know, and, and more importantly, and this is what Are You Okay Day is about, is if you have a feeling that someone's not doing their best, ask them and take a moment uh to spend some time and, and, and allow yourself to spend time if you have to because they might say, no, I'm not doing okay and you don't want to be saying, oh, well, I've got to catch the bus. Let's chat about that tomorrow. You know, if you see that someone's not doing so well uh, and it's more than a couple of days or a couple of weeks and they're changing their habits, the way they dress, the way they drink, the way they look after themselves, you know, I just check in. It can save a life. Mate, you released a book with McWell. Uh called Life Force. Yep. How much fun was that uh, working with him? He's always fun. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. And, and it, when when we decided to announce my second cancer on, on TV, the reason we did that was we wanted to show people that Baz, someone who everyone loves, and I'm blessed with that, uh, and I'm a big, strong guy, uh, he's going to get really, really sick, and then he's going to come back. And Amanda said... Let's inspire others by the journey you're about to take. And um, my wife, as you know, is a naturopath. She's right into health and fitness. And she, from day one, was making sure I had the right food, the right exercise, and be in the best physical shape I could be to take on what was heading towards me. The stem cell transplant, the lethal dose of chemo, that was going to play very heavily on my body. So... I learned so much from that. I, I ended up uh, working with Judith Lacey, Dr. Judith Lacey from the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse, as well as St. Vincent's and, and other hospitals. And she helped me a lot and helped Leone a lot with uh, the things I should be eating. And, um, and we then, I went to Miguel and said, mate, there's so much you can do. Miguel wanted to solve this problem for me. <laughs> and I said, there's so much you can do with diet and let's use my experience. And let's share with others the foods that you and Leonie are creating for me. And uh, and then it turned into a bit of, a, if anybody's had a chance to read the book, it turned into a bit of a, a memoir of my life. And, and whilst I'm very positive, I was scared that I might not make it. And I just wanted my kids to have a record of who I was. Mm. Mate, so... Recently, you've announced that you're going to run for the Australian Senate as an independent. Now, why, why politics? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm 61 years old. I have cancer. The cancer I've got is not a curable cancer. Uh, I love life. I grew up in a fibro house in the back of Liverpool. Life has been amazing to me. But I think and I've seen the culture of, of our society in the last 30 or 40 years has changed dramatically. You're too young to see it, and many of your listeners will be too young to see it. But there was a time where we would make a sacrifice happily knowing that we'd have a better life for our children. And I think your and my children are going to face a tougher life than I faced and less opportunity. I think there's an imbalance again 
in in the way that big corporations particularly control the governance of our country. And you you know you and me have done very well in the world, but it's going to be very difficult for children to to own a home. Um, we have a real sense of um, separation. We're not we're not a cohesive society anymore. We're we're looking for a reason to blame someone for something rather than look for a way I can help someone. These are general big things, but if you're an old guy like me and you've got cancer and you've got nine year old twins, you're laying in bed at night worried. Uh, what's going to happen when I'm gone. And I do a lot for charity. Uh, I try to because I get so much out of it. And I saw that as my way to change the earth that we live on. Uh, I'm very passionate about sustainability, but human nature is a very thing uh, is something I'm very passionate about as well. And, and I've always had a love-hate relationship with politics. And I love how our constitution was designed. It was designed that we have a lower house, and that's made up of your SCOMOs and your ALBOs and all the guys you vote for independently in each electorate. Now, just because 51% of the country votes for one of those and not the other, that doesn't mean that you can create legislation that just suits your half of the population. So what we have is what's called the Senate or the upper house. So the lower house creates the legislation and then they they meant to put it up to the upper house and then 76 individuals are meant to discuss that and make sure it's balanced for the society that we live in because that legislation is then a life sentence for this sentence. So it's no good if, you know, it, it, it didn't work and we change. But what's happened, it happened about 40 years ago, they changed the way we vote for the Senate. They said, if you vote above the line, we'll decide who's in the Senate for you. You don't have to worry about it. And what that means is, the lower house has got their best mates in the same party marking their exam paper. So it means that you can buy legislation uh, because we know how it's going to work out. There's no debate on it. There's uh, This is a crude and very basic way of looking at it. So it's like having your best mate mark your exam paper and if you pass, he gets a pay rise. So I feel the way I can make a difference is to advocate for the average person is to make sure I bring in a charter of which is on my website around sustainability, commerce, health, education, cohesion, and of course, transparency. And I believe if I am to to scrutinise every piece of legislation that comes from the lower house up to the upper house, if I can be the advocate for those things, I think I'm doing the best I can to create a better culture for your kids and mine in the future. Mate, great stuff. And how do people join Team Baz? Is there yeah, a, yeah. J- jump on the website, teambaz.com.au. Uh, I, I, I'm a one-man band at the moment. I've got a few helpers, but it's a bit clunky at the moment, but we're getting there. The government last week just changed the rules, so it went from uh, have for 50 years you've had to have 500 members in your party. They've decided because they're about to go to an election that you need 1,500 now. So if there's, uh, say there's 100 independents that want to run, that means there's uh, 150,000 people that have got to join independent parties. But basically, it's just a way to shut the common man out again and make sure the people that are in power are doing pretty well out of this system, but the rest of us aren't. And uh, we're the, one of the richest, most beautiful and vibrant countries in the world, but uh, it's a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots and... Um, and personally, I think the haves have worked out how to have the have-nots fighting each other, and that's the lack of cohesion that's in society at the moment. Well, maybe the uh, the big party's a bit worried that Baz has come on board and they've had to change the rules. 
Well, there's Ali Stegall in the lower house. There's a bunch of people that believe like I do. And, and you know, I'm not going to kid anybody. It's huge sacrifices I'm making to take on this role. Uh, but I know the average person, unless you had a platform like me, you can't do it. I'm happy to say it, Hopper. I'm $70,000 into this out of my own money. Tell me an average person that can do that. I'm doing it. Uh, because I just don't believe my children's children will have the same opportunity. I don't even believe your children will have the yeah. same opportunities that you and me had. So I can't really go through the life I've had and have the, the hurdles I've jumped over and jumped over and just so that my kids have it worse off than I did. Mate, it's a great achievement and um, fantastic on what you're doing. Mate, Baz, to, to, towards the end of the uh, interview, I've, I usually do my five fun facts and see what I can get out of you. Terrific. <laughs> So here we go with the first one. What's your biggest screw-up in the kitchen? Uh, walking into it. Uh, <laughs> I can't cook to save my life, and I'm surrounded by Leone, who's an amazing cook, and Miguel, who's an amazing chef, so uh, I'd best to stay out of the joint. <laughs> <laughs> Bit like me, mate. Yeah. Uh, what was one of the craziest things one of your teachers did when you were at school? Four. I grew up, uh, I went to the school of hard knocks as well as Liverpool Boys High, and um, that's an interesting one. It was a very different day back in the hard western suburbs so of Sydney at a boys' school, but we had a, um, we had a, the, the, the top three years, uh, fourth form, fifth form, and sixth form, each year used to play rugby union against the teachers, and we had a couple of Australian players uh, as teachers. Eric Groth was in our team, though, as well, and uh, the Sockwitz brothers. So I saw one of the worst head-high tackles I've ever seen on a, <laughs> on a human, but it was actually a student. So I think as far as wild things that I've seen that not a lot of people wouldn't have seen is uh, a, a savage blow to the head of a, an Australian, uh, not Australian, a, a first-grade football player, teacher, on a fifth-form student. Yeah. And it Mate. was quite a melee straight after that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, what would you name your boat if you had one? Uh, it's called Bella Sonny. Uh, it's an, a rough translation for Beautiful Dreamer. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? My latest Instagram post. Uh, it's about the scourge of these masks in the drains of our society. I think... Um, We've been very narrow-minded when it comes to the uh, to the uh, this whole virus situation, and I think uh, we're throwing the bath uh, the baby out with the bathwater. And what I mean by that is, I think the the baby is sustainability, cohesion, health, and masks. They're getting thrown out into the ocean uh, with, with the virus, uh, uh, which is which is pretty tough. So have a read of that. There's a plug for myself. <laughs> I, I, I segue that nicely. <laughs> Very good. Right, last question. What terrible movie do you love? Mm. Um, I've got nine-year-olds. I, I think I've watched with the kids Sharknado about 40 times. Um, it's hard. The kids watch the same crap time after time after time and I find myself watching it. But uh, I love a good romantic movie. Uh, my favourite uh, my, my favorite movie is Casablanca. My two favourite movies, and, and I'll tell anybody, you'll like this, Hoppo. <laughs> I reckon if you can sort of frame your life around a combination of Big Wednesday and Casablanca, yep. you're doing all yep. right. Oh, mate, I 100% agree with that one. <laughs> well, Baz, it's uh, mate, great having you in the beach shack. And, and it's always, you know, I enjoy having a chat to you. Um, 
Mate, stay strong. I know you're battling away. Um, you know, as I always say to everybody, is you never, ever give up. You've shown that over your pretty much your whole life. And, uh, mate, I'm very proud of you. And uh, going into Parliament and for our kids' future, even better. So thanks again, mate. Good on you, Hoppo. How cool was it chatting to Baz? He's so inspirational and, as he always says, never give up. Now let's go to the beach shack and have a listen to the beach banner. Okay, this week for a beach banner, I thought uh, we'd go way back to the early days when I first started. And this guy, I remember my first day at Bronny Beach becoming a professional lifeguard and walked in the door and this guy was there and he he took me on and explained everything I needed to be as a, as a professional lifeguard. But uh, it's a wow. warm welcome, Peter Calhoun. Oh, thanks, Hoppo. Jeez, you've got a long memory. Yes, I did a couple of years there at, uh, at Bronte. And um, I remember this like very fresh-faced, quiet young lad coming <laughs> you through the door. <laughs> well, I think it was you and, you and Bill Wiley. That, that's my experience oh, of being a lifeguard, mate. <laughs> oh, dear. Despite that, you're still there. Good on you, Hopper. Yeah, 30 Look, years later. Wow. Uh, I remember those early days at, uh, at, uh, at, at Bronte and then, of course, Tamarama and, and Bondi making up the, the Waverley beaches and, and – Look, I think I'd like to start off by relaying a story um, involving a young, a young twelve-year-old boy, if I will, and it was an introduction. I think the greatest introduction to lifeguarding anyone could ever had. And this twelve-year-old boy had just um, it's 1977, just seen the the movie Star Wars. And he'd painted all the characters on a T-shirt. And back in the day, then young kids would surf on their cool lights without rashes. They'd wear T-shirts. And he'd finished his surf and he was just mucking around on the edge. This is a Bondi. And he was throwing that T-shirt, this beloved T-shirt he just made, and he wasn't going to let it go. And all of a sudden, that T-shirt started to get sucked out into a rip. And he went with it. And, of course, this young 12-year-old is me. And I am now... I could swim, but this was an experience I'd never, never encountered. And I was going under. And we talk about people turning their back on the ocean and starting to climb the ladder and panic setting in. And this was me. And I'm thinking, I am, I am drowning and this is really frightening. Um, I wasn't letting go of that T-shirt though, Hoppo. <laughs> <laughs> but, but honestly, it, it came to the point where I'm, I'm almost resigned to the fact that this is it. And then all of a sudden, a rescue tube was thrust in front of me and I grabbed it. I grabbed it and at the end of that rescue tube was a strong blonde-headed guy who was just doing backstroke backstroke, and towing me, which seemed like at a rate of knots, at an angle, back to the beach. I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. I'm going at an angle and I got back to the beach and that this, this lifeguard, professional lifeguard said, in there, young lad, straight up the beach. And he went back out to pick up some more people. Now, that lifeguard, 10 years later, gave me a job. It's George Quigley. I'm not sure if I ever relayed that story to him, but he, he saved me. He saved my life, and then 10 years later, he, he put me on as a lifeguard, and it was a great lesson um, not only to, to, to maintain calm and, and a sense of calm in your voice when you're approaching a drowning patient. And I learned so much from those young guys, as I'm sure you did off me, Hoppo. <laughs> That's, that's right, mate. Well, well, funny enough, George employed me as well later on uh, uh, down the track. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, mate, uh, I had the same experience, uh, you know, the first day working with you. 
taught well, me every you, guy no to now. Have you ever been drowning? Like when you were a kid, did you ever get into a situation? I mean, we've all been in tricky situations as lifeguards, absolutely, mm. and you need to maintain a sense of calm because the patient can't panic. If you're yeah. panicking, then it's over. Yeah. But I'm just wondering whether you as a young guy, young surfer, would have had some difficult situations. Oh, i tell you, the, the one that comes to memory would be the one at uh, Bunny Bunnies, we used to call it, at, you know, yeah. the back of Bronte there at the back of the pool behind the reef. And I took off there one day surfing and, and just got dumped straight down and got pinned to the reef. And, and it was that much power, I just couldn't even get myself back up. And, you know, I got to the point there where I thought, geez, I'm going to drown here. So I'm not going to be able to get back to the top. Mm, it, it's, it's a, it, it never leaves you those experiences. And, and, and I think you really draw on them as a lifeguard. And another quick one involving again involving George and, and um, it, it was a, it was Easter time and I'd been on the lifeguard at maybe one or two seasons and a young girl, a 10-year-old girl had come from Maureen and they were going to the Easter show that afternoon but they said, well, go to Bondi and have a swim. And the Bondi surf boat, the old wooden surf boat, slewed right on the edge and right down the keel, there's a silver strip or a, or a metal strip to stop the, the, the keel eroding on the sand or on the, on the concrete. It almost hopper severed the bottom of a leg. It was the most wow. horrifying cut. It was terrible, and 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 again, I was early on the scene, and again, the the seasoned lifeguards led by George stepped in and maintained an absolute sense of calm. Now you can imagine the parents; they are freaking. The girl is lo- losing a lot of blood, and again, it was that seasoned lifeguard experience that basically not only had control of the situation instilled confidence in everyone involved in that scene and the confidence came from the process knowing the steps we get her off the beach let's get her up into the the old the old lifeguard rooms the ambulance is on its way george kept talking to her kept talking her kept her calm kept her parents calm and i'm thinking this guy has absolutely taken control of this situation and done it with the tone of his voice, and and that was that was another great lesson in 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 managing a situation and keeping people calm. Because if everyone's freaking out, which often happens real quick, mm. it's the lifeguard not only administering the first aid or the resuscitation, also maintaining composure, and that was another great lesson. Mm. Well, that, well, that was the, the lesson, yeah. When I started in '91, coming through in the '90s was the same thing. That's one thing I really learnt was staying calm in a, in a critical situation when other people naturally are, are going to panic. So, you know, that's something we try and instill into the young guys today when they work, because as you said, they tend to panic, and if they panic, that sets everybody off. And generally, you're going to make a mistake when you panic. Yeah, and, and it, 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 it sounds easy, but. It takes a few seasons, I think, to really – you've got to be confident, Hopper. You've got to be confident in, in knowing – I mean, the first aided mystery is the most important thing, but the great lifeguards also maintain that sense of composure and give their colleagues, their comrades, their fellow lifeguards that sense of uh, confidence as well because, because you, you, you don't know how you're going to react until you're faced with those mm. situations. And you and I both know young lifeguards who are really traumatised by some of these things. It's all fun and games and, 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 and that until you actually are faced with these situations. And, and mate, you know, I, I was on the beach for, I suppose, six, seven, eight years. And, you know, the guys like yourself who have maintained and made a career out of it, 
don't under- underestimate that ability that you guys have. It's really important and um, it's only developed through the experience that you have. And it's, mm. and it's fantastic that guys can make a career out of it like yourself. Yeah, mate, 100%. And uh, Pete, uh, thanks for coming in, mate, and joining us in the, in the Beach Shack and giving that story that uh, you know, probably <laughs> even George doesn't even know about. And staying calm. (laughs) (laughs) Up next, I answer letters from the fans. This letter's from Dallas. Uh, He's from Sydney. How are your dogs going? I see them on social media and they look like a handful. Yeah, well, I mean, both dogs. I mean, I've got a, a blue English staffie who is now nine years old, so... She's settled down a little bit, but still uh, quite uh, manic at times. Also, we've uh, just recently got a one-year-old uh, chocolate Labrador, uh, which is quite a handful. Um, he's 100 miles an hour, but got a, an amazing personality and needs a lot of walks. And we're currently now training him. We've got a trainer to give him a bit of training, and he's responding really well. He seems quite smart and picks things up very quick so you know they have their uh like kids do they both have their fights here and there bronte and cuba but uh we're trying to uh alleviate that and uh they are plenty of fun and a handful thanks everyone for listening remember to subscribe to life's a beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.